If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas, and I'm excited that you're here. And with that, we're going to jump into this week's podcast here in just a second. We're going to hit up our sponsors that help make the show possible. There's lots of companies that I believe in that I think help veterans across the board, whether it's find a job, hire talent, become more efficient in their practice, all those things, right? So these sponsors mean a ton to me. So I know a lot of people will fast forward or skip through them. But if and when you're looking for help and some of the solutions they offer, I would highly, highly encourage you to check them out. And so with that, no further ado, jump into the ads and we'll get right into the show. So thank you for listening and uh, enjoy. We all know as a practice owner, one of the last things you want to think about is tax planning and strategizing for your practice. In addition, the long list of tasks on your radar, it's really hard to do everything. You have to find a trustworthy team of experts that understands unique and specific needs within veterinary medicine. My suggestion would be my friends at Granite Peak Associates. Granite Peak is an advanced tax planning and veterinary practice advisory firm who has spent many years working within VetMed. Their team works year-round to make sure you're able to maximize your profitability while also minimizing your liabilities. Whether you're in the process of purchasing a practice, looking to grow your practice, or transitioning towards the sale of your practice, they are the experts to help guide you through. What makes them different than other firms is their devotion to proactive tax planning. By thinking into the future and creating long-lasting relationships with their clients, Granite Peak can help minimize the amount of taxes paid over the course of many years to come. Head over to their website, granitepeakcpa.com, to receive a personalized comparison of your practice financials against over 140 other hospitals that they've worked with. You'll be able to see how your practice ranks, where you stack up, and where the opportunities are to get better. From there, you can schedule a one-on-one call with one of the members of their team to review and analyze your results. The opportunity speaks for itself. You need someone on your side. Granite Peak Associates is that team. Take advantage of their innovative expertise within the veterinary industry. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. Finding a job or finding a veterinarian shouldn't be a waste of time. Enter an offer first. Paul Diaz and team have created something really special with Offer First. Some of my favorite reasons are as follows. Candidates and employers will both have values aligned on the first step, not the last. The sign-up process, quick and simple, no resume required. So if you're looking for a job, but you aren't really sure, it's as easy as scrolling on Zillow for a home. And finally, if you have a great match, it's based on your each unique requirements, not random keywords. If you want to learn more, listen to episode 170. 
nine with Paul Diaz. We cover all of that. The other exclusive great thing that you're going to get from this ad read and from Paul is I convinced him to give an exclusive discount to listeners of this podcast. So for owners, you're getting a 20% discount on both the placement of any candidate, but also access to the platform. Use VSP if you go to offer first or the easiest way is a link in the show notes. So check it out. Associates, those looking for a job, same thing. Use the link in the show notes. Use VSP if you go directly to offer first. But I will donate and Paul will donate to a veterinary nonprofit of your choosing. So each person that signs up gets a vote. Your votes actually count, which is incredible. And so I'll be reaching out. I will handle that. But there's going to be a donation made for any associate or any job seeker that adds on the platform. We want to make sure that not only does the platform help to make sure that you find a better fit, better culture, better role, but it's also doing good in veterinary medicine. Okay. So link in the show notes is going to take you to offer first. It's going to automatically apply that, but also use code VSP if you go to offer first directly. And offer first is changing the game of veterinary recruiting. I want each and every one of you to benefit from it. So check them out today. Find out for yourself why my friends at Shepherd Veterinary Software are the fastest growing practice management software. They're doing something right. Founded by Dr. Cindy Barnes, Shepherd is an intuitive, easy to learn, streamlines practice management. Built for vets, by vets, it works for you and your team so you have more time to spend on what's most important, your patients. Shepherd automatically updates the medical records, adds services to the invoice, generates discharge instructions, and so much more. Bring home more stories and less stress. Check them out at shepherd.vet. Again, that's shepherd.vet. All right. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kurt Phillips. Kurt and I actually recently connected in person, oddly enough, because he comes from Indiana, although Bend, Oregon is where he lives now. We had to go all the way to Las Vegas to connect in person, even though we used to live 15 or 20 minutes apart. And uh, we were able to connect to WVC, which was awesome. And Kurt had owned Cityway Animal Clinics until 2021. And there were five different locations. You'll feel this throughout, right? He's very entrepreneurial, has owned other businesses outside of VetMed and has some really great takes and insight into the construction and running and building of teams. So really excited to chat through that and the overall journey because it's one of those things that he'll be the first one to tell you is definitely a learning experience. And there's lots of great people that he's been able to connect with along the way. So Dr. Phillips, uh, first and foremost, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Isaiah. And agreed. It was real fun to connect with you in, uh, in Las Vegas. And just being there in a different mode as well, too, as a retiree was just a lot of fun. I could do more of what you and I did, which was just sit down for a couple of cocktails and just talk about what's cool and what's happening in this industry. And uh, before I was going to class and trying to get as much C as I could and, and maybe hitting the exhibit hall of, you know, here and there for just the two or three products that I needed. And this time at Western was eye-opening and mind-blowing for me. So it was really great to meet with you and your friend as well, too. So, yeah. Yeah. What was the thing that stuck out the most? We chatted just before we hit record, but was it the size and the amount of money? Because that was something that definitely stuck with me as well. I've done Western Veterinary Conference. So this was my third time. And like I said, two times as a practicing veterinarian and different stages of my career as well, too. So, you know, the amount of uh, the amount of practices I had and the amount of, you know, money I had to spend or if I was just there only to learn, you know, it really it has every, a little bit for everything. And this time I thought there's a lot for everybody. I mean, there were really great lectures. If I would have been there trying to learn. I would have I would have had hard pick of to which ones I wanted to go to. And then, you know, the practice management seminars were I thought were, were outstanding. And then the exhibit hall just knocked me on my socks. I was always impressed with the size of the exhibit hall at every one of those conferences. I knew it was the big one. I went to the North American, now VMX a couple of times. And I always thought, wow, there's 
is so much fun and so many cool things to look at and games to play and give outs and giveaways to be had and connections to be made. And then I went this time and I think it was three times as big as I've ever seen it. It was so huge. Did you agree how big that was? It was massive. I didn't get through as much as I would have thought through the exhibit hall, just of structured conversations or people I wanted to see. So didn't give myself enough time, but uh, was in and out uh, basically in 48 hours. So I went up and down the aisles systematically and I just felt like I was, I was just scratching the surface. I'm going to give a shout out to and one particular company that just completely blew me away. And I'll give you a little backstory. In my VMG group, which I'm sure we'll talk about, always had this discussion about HR and what type of a person we were going to try to hire and find and cultivate. And what were the things that you just looked and didn't want to have at all? And in my VMG group, which wasn't that long ago, there were still a couple of people in there who were like, listen, we don't allow for any art on the skin. No tattoos. This year at, at Western Veterinary Conference, Modern Vet, which is, I think, a group of veterinarians and putting practices into some really cool places and really cool cities, were giving away free tattoos, real tattoos. I'm not talking about the press-on kind that wash off or it wasn't henna tattoos like at a music festival. These were that five, four or five tattoo artists just buzzing in like paws and little dog faces and hearts with animals around them. I'm like, genius. <laughs> that was amazing. And to see how far our, our industry's come from five years ago, people saying, I won't have a person on my team who has a tattoo and now we're giving them away. It was cool. <laughs> Your background and story is is incredible. And I like the fact that I have a long format podcast. But <laughs> from that standpoint, you can go as much depth or kind of keep it high level because I do want to spend time on some of the big changes that you hinted on VMG, which I know was instrumental in kind of the switch changing for what you've done. But mm -hmm. can you talk about you were young when you became a practice owner? And I think practice ownership is going to kind of be woven into this conversation throughout. Yeah. Let's lay the groundwork of the first hospital, how things went from there, what you learned, how many times you bumped your knee and your elbow and all that other stuff. I've always thought if I would like to get into some public speaking and some teaching again, and I think I could probably spend an hour or two just on all the things that I did wrong. Right. And any good business owner should be able to do that. And if they if they can't come up with at least two hours of nonstop discussion about what they did wrong or mistakes they made, then maybe they're a little too self-righteous or or they just not enter the looking. But I did a lot of things wrong. Luckily, nothing too terrible. Right. I never made any massive mistakes that really hurt anybody. And that's what I'm super proud of. Right. Sometimes financially, you know, there was hurts and making bad decisions and wishing you would have went left and versus right. But if you're not looking for those opportunities, then you're just plowing down the middle. You might not make very many mistakes, but you don't have a lot of that fun on either side either. So a little background on me, born and raised in northern Indiana, small town, LaPorte, Indiana, up in the northwest corner. You know, raised by a single mom after the age of eight. My father passed away when I was young and, you know, just identified pretty early on that science was something that I was really good at and, and really loved to do. We lived a little bit out in the country, not like on a farm per se, but we had, you know, enough strays and things like that hanging around. So that's the classic story. But I didn't have an opportunity, a real clear cut, easy opportunity to even to go to undergraduate. So luckily, I was very fortunate to attend Butler University for my four years and was awarded a full ride scholarship, room and board and everything. I mean, they paid for everything back in the day. And it was just so much fun based on my criteria from high school and the amount of activities I was in, and, you know, and my trajectory of path and my test scores, of course, you know, all, all played into that. But 
super fortunate there because I could barely afford to go to Purdue as an in-state kid. Purdue was not an option for me to go to, to go to college. It would have been community college, stay at home, work someplace, and then put yourself through community college, and then maybe try to get into veterinary school. So the path probably wouldn't have been the same. So luckily, Butler gave me that solid foundation to leap from there over to Purdue, went to school for Purdue for four years, same kind of story as everybody else. Great school, loved it. You know, not as much as I loved undergrad, of course, but you know, definitely, you know, didn't hate the four years while I was there, but hard, you know, put pedal to the metal. And I remember like in the second year, or maybe the first year, we had like, one hour of a business class. That's, that's it. And, it. and they had to divide that up over the semester into like, swineherd business and sheeping business and the business of running an equestrian barn. And I'm like, okay, well, what are the, the guys who are in small animal? Like we get two classes, but, but one of the questions they asked was what kind of a veterinarian do you want to be when you graduate? And I think they were asking, Oh, I want to be a small animal. I want to be a large animal. I want to be equine, what have you. And I just said, you know what? I kind of want to be the veterinarian that makes a difference, but also makes a bunch of money. And everybody looked like, what? He said that out loud. We're not here to, we're supposed to. And I'm like, hey, the interview's over. I'm here to be a business person, to be in charge of my own domain and destiny and to do well. And doing well, I kind of felt like we'll probably make a significant impact on the community, which was probably number two in my life. I mean, I knew I was, we left veterinary school pregnant with our first child. So I knew I was going to be a part of the community. And veterinarian is an easy way to do that. So did that for four years, came back to Indianapolis, landed a job at a practice that had just opened up a practice in Carmel. So I went to work to, on their east side location, learned a bunch from the staff, the team that was already there. I give them so much credit for the time that I spent there because there was no real mentorship from the veterinarian staff. And it was like, you had a good RBT, man, you just learned a bunch from them. So I did. Had a great, great RBT, had a great staff, had another great associate veterinarian who was willing to take me under her wing and help me a few with a few things. Became proficient in surgery and clinical like that because it was like there was no more. It was just like hit the ground running. So I did that for a couple of years. The owner of the two practices asked me to come up to the Carmel location and run it by myself in my third, second year, third year, something like that. And so I did. And that was because we were living up there on the north side anyway. So that was great. Really nice you know, promotion for me, essentially, to go up there and try to be a leader, like all, right off the bat. Like he's like, I'm not going to be here, but for maybe like once a week. So it's yours. Take care of the staff, take care of the pets, take care of the clients, just do it. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. So I did that for about a year and a half or so and was enjoying it. Definitely building a new community, now a suburban community versus an east side community, but that was closer to where I was living. So totally understood why that's important is like, you know, to talk to your neighbors about what you do and that you're a trusted veterinarian down the street and, you know, tell everybody else. And so we grew pretty quickly. The owner of the practices decided to open up a third practice in the Geist area, which for him was ideal because it was like real close to his home. He had built a beautiful home out there on the northeast side of town. And so he built a practice out there, ground up, beautiful building. I mean, like it was like everything he wanted. And the other two were, we made them work. The practice that I was working at was in an old three bedroom ranch house with a basement. And the basement was like where we put dogs, you know, in the kennel. And I'm like, oh, I would never do that again. But it is what it was, you know, it was, the only, it was a piece of real estate. It was a great location right on 116th and Rangeline Road. So back in that day, that was like kind of like almost like the epicenter of Carmel. It's now shifted way high. And there's another huge area of Carmel that's more exciting. But, but at that time, that was like where everybody was driving. So we had a nice little practice. So he came to me and he said, hey, you know, I think I'm kind of spread a little too thin, you know, with all three of these practices, you know, what do you think? Should we partner up? Should we whatever? And I just honestly just didn't feel like the connection that he and I had was one that could be a partnership for life. And I know the only thing I did know 
about veterinary, about medicine in general. Someone wise had said, listen, before you become a partner with someone, make sure you like them and that you can, it's almost like a marriage. Make sure you're like, you're really, really close and you're really, really entwined on everything and how to do business and such. And just, and, and I didn't really feel that with this owner. So I said, well, that's not really an option for me. And then, you know, luckily he was kind enough to say, well, you could just, I'll parcel off this part of it and you can have the, just the one clinic. You've been here for a year and a half, two years. You're pretty much running the place. Just here's what I'd want from it. And let's just do that. And we didn't even evaluate the thing. We didn't run it through and buy any CPA. We didn't do anything. He wanted me to use his CPA at the time. The guys at Catsepper and Miller, he was there. My owner had used the guys at Catsepper and Miller. And then I said, you know, I don't think that's a wise choice. I think I'll get my own CPA, my own lawyer. Let's not like meld too much of this together. So I was wise in that regard. So the transaction was fine and easy. And I felt that was a good price. And I knew that the price didn't matter because the potential for this practice under my care, under my leadership style, I knew that I could make some changes and make it go even more successful than it was. And that proved to be true, which was nice. You know, it definitely made me feel good. But yeah, at the beginning, I just said, like, let's just get this taken care of and get this sold. And so I was, I think I was 30, 30 years old in two months when I bought my first practice and just rolled with it. And I spent the next 14 years up there in Carmel, just building that practice. We built it in, in its current existing location. And at the end of my five-year lease, I saw the writing on the wall that there was no way I was going to be able to expand. So I bought a building around the corner on the Monon Trail. And it was just an industrial building. Here's one of those mistakes, kind of a shit show, kind of ugly, kind of like, I don't know why I bought it, except for that it was on the Monon Trail and it was 8,000 square feet. So, and it was cheap. So we bought it and tried to make it into a retrofit it into a veterinary clinic, which wasn't ideal and didn't go real well. <laughs> so then I did that for like the next 12, well, maybe that would have been like more seven more years in that newer building. And honestly, that was probably my early demise of leaving the suburbs was I just never liked that building. It always gave me such a heartache being in there. So we ended, I ended up selling that company to Lakefield, which is now Lakefield Veterinary Hospital. At the time, it was Best Friends. Great company out of the Pacific Northwest, Seattle-based. And they just were looking to buy some boarding facilities and veterinary hospitals around the Midwest. And we had this very large 3,500-square-foot boarding facility tacked onto the back of our building and the city of Carmel had already given me pre-authorizations. If I ever wanted to, I could expand another 4,000 square feet down that Monon Trail. So I was just sitting in a great spot. And best friends knew that. They're like, if we want to build a beautiful boarding facility for pets with a veterinarian attached, like this will work. So it did. And they bought that. I have a couple different things throughout. So first one was, I think when you had the opportunity to partner or buy at 30, you know a little bit, but you don't know what you don't know. You were confident enough to say, I can do this on my own. And I think you were also wise enough to think about it. Yeah, or <laughs> foolish. And, and, and that's that's a fair answer too, right? Hey, I was just dumb. I was naive. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I just said, hell yeah, let's go, right? Yeah. But there's also the part of the partnership. And I've been very transparent on this podcast. I was in a business partnership, did not go well. I can talk all about that at some point down the road once <laughs> get further along. But I've seen that firsthand not go well when you try to do the square peg round hole thing and it's not fun. And so I give you credit for not just saying, well, I don't know if I can do it. I need this person versus having the confidence. And so I wanted to ask, were you always fairly confident growing up? Was it something that changed when you went to Butler or something that like your mom instilled in you? Where did the confidence come from? And do you know, or is that just the way you're wired? Wow, that's a good question. 
Even my therapist hasn't even asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the new therapy, right? Is this podcast? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think confidence has probably really shaped itself during undergraduate. Again, you know, going shout out to Butler, go dogs. I mean, that whole university just gave me all the skills and the tools that I needed from social to academic to public speaking to being able to frame a thought around a concept and write as well. At liberal arts school, it really makes you just really well-rounded in that regard. You know, growing up as a single with a single mom who wasn't really super available, couldn't be because work and school and things like that also couldn't be emotionally because she lost her husband at a young age. I don't think I got much confidence there for sure, but I think I was building the blocks of like trying to figure out, okay, I need to launch out of this scenario. Not that it was like terrible, but it was definitely everybody wants to launch up when you're on your own. And I definitely knew I wanted to do that. So I did that, yeah, four years in undergrad. By the time I got to Purdue, I just kind of felt like, honestly, no offense to that whole scenario, but I just needed to get through four years. I mean, that was my sole intent. I had no desire to be on top. I had no desire to be on the dean's list. It just didn't matter to me because I'm like, I know what this means to me. It gives me a license, which is a doctor of veterinary medicine. But the sky's the limit at that point. And then it still is for veterinarians. Get out and do whatever. We'll go work for the government. Go work in a laboratory. Go big pharma. Go, you know, private practice. And then that, how many thousands of different types of private practice can we, not thousands, but tens of different types of medicine that you can do. So yeah, confidence in, in undergrad, cultivated, uh, but then really, really shaped as a, when I became a CEO of my own companies. And that's what I'm out there to try to like to sell to people is that we need to tell, tell more veterinary owners, entrepreneurs that you are truly an entrepreneur, just not a clinic owner. That's not all, all that you are. You are so much more than that. And I think you should just start calling yourself a CEO of your company. I don't care if it's called Phillips Pet Hospital, Kurt Phillips, comma, CEO, because are you not acting like a CEO? I mean, don't you do all the responsibilities of a CEO? And maybe you're not. Maybe you're doing all the responsibilities of upper level management instead of acting like a CEO. Because a CEO should be talking about visioning and goal setting and procurement of funds to do the things we want to do, which can either come from increasing your revenue or increasing your prices or decreasing your costs. But if you want a better ultrasound machine, we'll figure out how to do it. Set your sights and go for it. And if you're not doing that and no one in your practice is, you never get in that ultrasound machine. Yeah. I want to talk about then the moves. You sold, we'll call it the ugly building, right? In Carmel, the one that you just, there is something to it, right? I've talked to Marie from Planable and there's data and there's research and they do like architectural work within veterinary medicine. There's absolutely research about when you're in a space, you can feel what the space is. You'll be more creative. You're happier to be there. Totally understand that. So when you said that, it made me think of that interview. I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's well, I, I experienced a little bit of some mental health problems during that time because, you know, as soon as I moved in there, this was probably my first failure in my entire life, to be clear. And that my therapist has talked to me about, <laughs> like, when did your first fail, right? And when it happens to you at the age of 34, it's a little harder to deal with. I worry about the next generation. We're not letting these kids fail much. These 12-year-olds, these 10-year-olds, these 18-year-olds, 30-year-olds, they didn't, they didn't fail much. So when they do... I'm here to tell you, it kind of sucks. And you think you got everything under control and you're managing all your plates that are spinning and you got everything good and you've been managing, managing, managing for the past 30 freaking years of your life. And then something like this happens where you build a building that is crap. I mean, I chose a lot of things wrong. I chose like a guy who said he could do commercial. He really couldn't do commercial. He was probably more on the residential space, which means he doesn't understand 
what type of doors to put on so that you don't like hear whispers in the hallway outside of your exam room while you're trying to euthanize a pet, stuff like that. All me, I take a lot of that re- responsibility because I didn't choose the right person. But he also very clearly never told me he wasn't the right person for the job. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those things, the, the fake it till you make it can be dangerous. And that's one of those situations where it's like, oh, yeah, I can do that. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and that's uh, why I mean, you, you mentioned you know, my adage. And I think we've talked about this in Vegas, but I'm not a big fan of the fake it till you make it mantra. I think that's just crap. But my mantra was, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And I know who knows what I don't know. And honestly, that didn't really come into real good play until like I was running my own companies downtown because I, I didn't really act like that through my suburban practice, which was my first, making a lot of mistakes. But I very clearly went to the downtown market of Indianapolis with the adage that like, I'm not going to lie about anything I don't know. If I'm going to do a new building or a new business, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a bunch of people for some help, lawyers, accountants, marketing people, whatever. And clinically too, like I'm not going to blow smoke up any client's butt about what I know darn well that this dog has type two amyloidosis and whatever, because he didn't run any tests. Like you don't get to make that stuff up until you ask the questions. And as soon as it got to something that I wasn't comfortable with, I'm like, nah, no, I can't do that. You've got to go to the internist or the ophthalmologist or to one of my other associates who's way better at this than I am. And I know we've got this relationship of like four or five years and I put two of your dogs to sleep over those five years and that you love coming to see me, but like, whoa, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I'm like a 40, 45 year old guy saying this stuff regularly, daily. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you know that? I'm like, no veterinarian knows everything. And if they do, if they say they do, they're just lying to you. (laughs) Well, it goes with, you had confidence to acquire the first practice, but then there's also the part of ego of saying, I know again, that I can't know everything and I'm okay with that. And I'm confident in the other things I bring to the table, right? Because there's lots of things that you do really well and you're like, I'm going to focus on doing that stuff. And let's get into why downtown? Why did you pick the location? What did it look like? So you sell, you go downtown. How long was it like as soon as you were selling, you knew that's where you wanted to go or was there some other master plan that changed? I started my first downtown practice two years before I sold. So that was nice. There was some writing on the wall that my associate veterinarian at the time was entrepreneurial and she wanted to do some things in her own entrepreneurial space. And so this is kind of ongoing problem with the veterinary industry at the time. I mean, she was a phenomenal veterinarian and really a great associate. And I'm like, I cannot lose this person. Like, like, I don't care what she needs or wants. This is a two doctor practice in Carmel and it can't go back to a one doctor practice. You know, I can't do the work of two doctors. So we decided to partner up and do a, a different venture in a, disassociated from the suburban practice because I knew that mainly because of that building, honestly, as I knew that I couldn't stay there forever. And I knew that I wasn't going to tear down that building and remodel it again. So I was like, I got to get out. So I started exploring opportunities for a consolidator or a corporate ownership to come in and take me over. And some of them at the time, like VCA was giving me a great price, but they're like two years CMO. And I'm like, no, like I can't do that. And until you start paying me on production, I mean, I have a family to raise and a house that wasn't exorbitant. It was a very normal home, but I just know my own personal budget. Like I'm not going to be able to do that going back to being essentially an associate. And they're like, well, you know, but we gave you so much money that you'll have that. I'm like, it wasn't that much money at the time. And I was 40 at that time. But yeah, I'm just like, I can't do that. So I explored an opportunity for someone who said, you know, we'll just take it and you can go. And that was best friends now Lakefield. 
I stuck around for like six months, you know, definitely opened up the books and, you know, helped them with any kind of transition they needed. I ran to a guy at Western Veterinary Conference who was literally part of the transaction deal. He's now doing some brokerage consulting, great guy. And he's just like, yeah, you know, that was a fun transaction with you. And we had a great time making that happen. And it was the first time we'd ever considered it, buying a practice and not buying the doctor, the owner doctor, one of two. I mean, that's risky. Yeah, for sure. I had recently hired a couple of new associates in our plan to grow. And so I think they were happy to let me just skate off. And it worked into the arrangements. Like it was no funny business. It was like, you know, you already know I already have this practice downtown and I'm working there seeing patients, you know, two days out of the week. So I'm not going to stop that because it's growing and it needs me down there. And so they're like, that's fine. You know, work two days a week here like you have been for two more months and then out you go. So. That was amazing. So my partner and I went down there. We would split time back and forth between the Carmel practice and the downtown practice. And then right when we sold, when I sold the Carmel practice, then we had another practice that was launching. So then it was just perfect time. We literally sold out and then I was no longer required and she was no longer required to be there. You know, now that I think about it, Lakefield bought that and both associate veterinarians left the practice and they still bought the practice. That, that's unheard of today. Yes. <laughs> There's no way they would ever. They would never do that. <laughs> no, but that's what happened. I mean, that was it was she and I working the practice, and we did have one other associate who was our third and relatively new, and was amazing, great producer. She was so good, and she uh, she stayed as the medical director, and then my partner and I got to skate off six months after the sale, and then we went right downtown, and then we opened up the Fountain Square Clinic. So our first one was on Mass Ave, and then the next one was Fountain Square. And it's there, if you don't know anything, people who don't know about Indianapolis, built in a circle, little spokes that come out. Massachusetts Avenue is this one, and Virginia Avenue is this one. And, and those are the two places in the city that were just starting to blow up. Downtown with the Circle City Mall and the Super Bowl and all that kind of stuff, that was big. But no one was really living downtown. They, people were living in neighborhoods concentric to the downtown circle. And so we plopped one there on the cultural trail on right off of Mass Ave. We call it the Mass Ave Animal Clinic. And I was always a little sheepish about it because it was not on Massachusetts Avenue, but because, because why? Because rents there were like $50 a square foot. And the rent I got one block off of Mass Ave was $12 a square foot per year. So significant difference. So we did that. And then, yeah, we opened up the Fountain Square Clinic right when I was selling my Carmel practice. So then my partner and I could just come down there and then we just flopped back and forth between the two practices downtown. And that's the beginning of it. Yeah. And I know just from our conversations, that relationship changes, right? So that initial associate partner, that relationship started to fray. There was some difference of opinion. Can you kind of talk through that? And was there an additional couple clinics by then? What did that look like? It was so fun for several, several years, six or seven years. You know, she and I were just amazing together. We started doing what, you know, I'm really like to talk about now, which is organizational leadership in, in the veterinary clinic and how to do that. We started it when we only had two practices. I was the type of guy who I'm like looking forward. I'm looking 10 years down the road and three years down the road and one year down the road. And I'm trying to figure out what does it look like for us to get to our goals and what does it look like physically? And, but also how many people are you going to have working for you? And what are they going to be doing for you? And what roles would they be serving within your company? And I think that, again, our industry tends to lock itself into, well, I'm the owner and I'm the primary veterinarian and I have a practice manager. So that's all I need, right? And now nah, you got, there's like a, so many more layers that you need. So my partner and I were doing a nice job of early designating what it was going to look like for us to grow into this conglomerate of 15 practices is what our goal was within 10 years. 
And uh, we were well on track. I mean, we were pumping them out about one every year or two. We did a high-end grooming salon down there. And then we identified there was some space in there. So we put a little wellness clinic in that so that people who were dropping their dogs off for grooming could get their dog's ears checked or their vaccinations done or their heartworm testing done or their yearly wellness, just a one-stop shop. And it was two blocks from my other practice. So at that time, I was getting all these people calling me and saying, what are you doing? You're putting a practice two blocks from your other one? That is, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, because the real estate was there. It was in a beautiful, cute little neighborhood where people walked around with their dogs all the time. And they were proud of living there and they loved the city of Indianapolis and it was ripe for the taking. And I'll stay out of my business. Like, I'll figure this out. But then I listened to that. And I'm like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm cannibalizing or whatever. But it never came to fruition. We would just put clinics in neighborhoods where people were living and congregating and building their own communities. Because once you get into one community, whether it's a school community or a church community or just a neighborhood association, like wildfire, like everybody's bringing their pets to you. And then we got to the point where each of our clinics, we were renting these little 1,800, 2,200, 2,400 square foot facilities. And we made them work, but you get to be two full-time equivalent doctor, one's in the back run surgery, one's seeing all the patients and three or four exam rooms. And the staff that comes along with that, the number, quantity of staff that you have to have to do it well, our ratio is like, I think at the, at the end when I sold, it was six and a half full-time team members per every doctor. And that included my leadership team, which we can talk about later as well, which weren't clinical at the time. But we definitely had two or three people working with every veterinarian who was either seeing patients or running surgery. So, and then you just divvy up from there. You'd have to have 12, 13 people in, in the 1,800 square foot facility. We were trying to get twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 revenue out of those days. That's tough. <laughs> so we couldn't expand because I would find these really cool spots that probably a bar or a coffee shop could have gone into and it would have been really cool. But instead, a boring veterinarian comes along and plunks his place down. Then it just got so fun. And I see so many people in our industry doing the same kind of work. Dylan Fredrickson up in Chicago and people like Cody Creelman who's doing like really modern stuff. And that's what we were doing. We were just trying to build these veterinary clinics that looked a thousand percent different than everybody else's. And when you say looked different and... Well, actually, I'm going to pause. I'll come back to that. So we'll come back to look different. The organizational leadership, there was a big change of something you wanted to implement and you felt like this made sense as we grew. And your kind of partner said, nah, I don't think that's the right move. Kind of walk us through that as much or as little as you want. And then what was the turning point then from there? Yeah, so what I'd been investigating at the time was, was the simple process called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. A lot of people call it Traction because there's a book of with that name called Traction, which um, talks about the entrepreneurial operating system. And Gina Wickman is the author of that book. And he, I think it's in the first chapter or two, he very clearly comes out and says, listen, people, I didn't come up with any of this stuff on my own. These are concepts and ideas that have been floating around the business world for at least a decade or so. And he said, what my intention is and my team of writers and staff is to produce, to create process, a system that you can place into any small business from, you know, the sweet spots around 20 to 350, or no, like, they, they like to be around 70 to 350, but we did it earlier. We were like well around 20 people at the time, 
but EOS would like it to be around 70 employees to about 350 employees, I think are the numbers. Don't quote me on that. But And that's where it just really tends to work. It just tends to get the company just grooving and constantly working on the right thing and knowing what your goals are and trying to reach them and breaking those goals up and from 10 to 3 to 1, then into quarters, sizable chunks that you can actually manage. You can hold your entire team accountable after you tell them what they're accountable for, because that's number one in the veterinary industry is it okay, Back to my example, we got a guy who, or a girl who, who has a practice and they hire a practice manager. Bob's going to do everything for me. Okay, Bob doesn't know shit about anything. He's coming to you to tell him how you would like him to run his practice. Now, he might have been a practice manager someplace else, but that's not what you want. You want to bring that kind of baggage into your new practice. Like You need to be telling anybody you put into a leadership position exactly what I need from you and exactly how we do things here. And we're not saying that this is dictated for the life of forever. But if you have anything that you want to change, there are some ways in which you're going to bring that to our attention and then we'll talk about it and we'll do the best thing for our company, not knee-jerk reactions. You're going to quit if I don't do this or whatever, because that happens far too often. And when you do that, you build leaders who just know what you're going for. So I've been looking at this and my partner wasn't super on board with it. She was going through some life changes as well that were pretty traumatic to her and um, I understood that. And I tried to like, you know, say, hey, take a leave of absence. Maybe we divide our duties up a little bit so that I can, I don't feel like I'm doing the majority of the work while you're recovering. What can we do for you? And at the time, we just decided that, you know, maybe the best thing for her would, would be to take her portion of the assets out of the company and then go off and do her own thing. And so in 2017, we did that. And so then that made me the 100% owner of Cityway Animal Clinics Incorporated, which at that time had four downtown practices and the high-end grooming salon. And then I was able to do one more subsequent to that, but COVID got thrown in there and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But yeah, it was uh, liberating for me because I could go right back to my team and say, hey, you guys have been hearing me talk about traction and EOS. And I'd really like to consider doing this for our companies. And you guys are in these particular roles. I just want to go through this process so that we can solidify exactly what you're doing so there's no confusion that you're not doing it the way you know in which my previous partner was telling you to do things because I don't know exactly what she was telling you to do and that's on me I didn't you know keep on like I gave her her duties chief medical officer and HR officer and I took on the other side which was like the executive officer role and the financial officer role and I was looking for new properties and new neighborhoods to put clinics in we were rolling on that goal so then when she leaves and takes those vital skills with her, I'm left with this leadership team who is reporting to her. And I have to solidify once and for all that from henceforth, this is how we're going to do things. And do you all agree? And if you do, then get on my ship because I'm setting sail. And I'm happy for that you're there. I need people to row this ship. I need people to steer this ship. I need people to, to do all the things. But like you're not in charge. I'm in charge. And I need these things to happen. And But I need every bit of your help to accomplish all the things that we're doing. And then we just rolled it. And EOS changed my business life. Absolutely. 100%. And so I know VMG was a big part, which probably was there with your partner prior. But then you talked about when I ran the practice in Carmel, I didn't know how to do some of those things or understand. What was the turning point there from that kind of going back to the CEO kind of role as you got into VMG or as you started to refine that? Because I think you refine that and bring EOS together. And that was kind of the magic it seemed like in our conversations. Yeah. Looking back on that now, even as you say that, I'm having flashbacks to, gosh, I should have caught that. But when I started looking at VMG as the chief financial officer of our company, it's made a lot of sense. You join a group, 
you are part of this amazing community of really high-end, high-quality veterinarians report that they're going to teach you how to do everything better, increase your revenues, decrease your wait time, talk about culture, decrease your COGS, increase your EBITDA, walk you through a transition. All that stuff was promised and all of that stuff was delivered with VMG. But having said that, I think back on that and I wanted to do it. And I was obviously the right person to do it. My partner didn't want to leave the exam room. I mean, ever. she really didn't even like to talk to staff members very much, even though we had made her chief of HR and that was a bad decision looking back on it. But she was a wonderful clinician, super high producer. And so why would she be the one to go to, to VMG? It just didn't make sense. But I'm like, listen, we should join this. And also, by the way, you know, at first I got a whole bunch of kickback. That's a lot of money. The, the yearly fees are a lot of money. And then you're going to go to travel. And I suppose the company has to pay for that. I'm like, yeah, that's how companies are run. I mean, there are business expenses. Why would I not take them? I mean, you can go to CE and pay for travel. So why can't I go to a leadership conference every six months and pay for travel? It doesn't make any sense what you're saying right now. But she did say those things. And then I should have known at that time, like, we're not on the same ship, right? Begrudgingly, she allowed me to join VMG. Immediately, we saw a drop in our Antec bill and our Zoetis bill and our <laughs> Rokin bill and rebates were just being handed to us because of good practice. We we're buying a lot of products from their preferred vendors and that's the way it's supposed to be. So then I, you know, I could show her the numbers and she was a little bit okay with it. But then I would come back from these meetings every six months and she would say stuff like, oh, here comes Dr. Phillips. He's going to want to do some crazy shit. Well, yeah, like I learned some crazy shit at this conference. Why can't we do that? What's the problem with that? Like, I, I'm not asking you right now to help me. Just keep seeing your patients. I'll do it all around here, but just hear me out. And it was always a battle. So again, yeah, VMG took a couple of years before. And tell you what, going through that emotional catharsis of breaking up with a business partner and then having 19 of your best friends help you through that. And and I never had a, a friend in veterinary medicine except for like you know some people I hung out with in, in vet school. But like we didn't really maintain a relationship you know for the rest of my business career. So I wasn't hanging out and commiserating with other veterinarians. And I probably did that on my own. Honestly, I don't want to be like a lot of the other veterinarians. So I want to do something different and wild. And so maybe I should be hanging out with CPAs and lawyers and entrepreneurs on the side. And so I never really had a group of veterinarians to hang out with until I got to VMG. And they put you in this like, summer camp scenario where you don't know anything about anybody and you learn everything about everybody, <laughs> like down to their nitty gritty. And then you're going out in the evenings and you're socializing and you're really getting to know these people. And then I go through this thing with my partner and it kind of got a little, it wasn't like the easiest, like my purchase when I first bought my first practice, that was so easy. But my sale from of my assets out of my partner so that she could leave the company was not easy. But luckily, I had 19 shoulders to cry on when it happened. If you can improve the health of an animal, you'd do it, right? Of course. That's what makes veterinarians special. You're mission-driven. My friends at LifeLearn are the exact same way. For over 25 years, they've been partnering with you and your peers, providing affordable, customizable online software solutions. These solutions save time, increase efficiency, and assist in managing all aspects of operations. Why? They want to help you improve your partnership with pet owners to improve pet health. LifeLearn has award-winning digital media solutions and are leading the pack as they've prioritized having extensive veterinary knowledge throughout their teams. That difference is seen, it's heard, and it's read by thousands of people across the country. Relax 
grow and thrive with LifeLearn. Click the link in the show notes for an exclusive offer to see how LifeLearn can allow you to get back to what you do best. And so I want to go back and I'm bouncing a little bit, but that's, again, the way this typically works. You made a great comment. I don't want to ignore it because I, I do jot things down as we go through, but the look in the process. So you went and looked at neighborhoods. You said, we want to integrate. We want it to look different. We want it to feel different. Maybe it would have been a coffee shop or a bar. We're going in and being different by design. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. When you yeah. say it. I have a lot of memories of the first practice I worked at in high school that had like wood paneling up to like, you know, two feet. And now looking back on it, at least you could clean wood paneling way better than you can clean like drywall or wallpaper. That's even worse. But um, porous things in a veterinary hospital, you shouldn't have anything porous in your hospital. But because what happens, it starts to smell. Every veterinary clinic I went to when I was a teenager and learning, oh, this is what I want to be. I thought to myself, I don't, I want to be all of this, but I don't want it to stink like dogs at all times. And I also didn't want to see, and I hope I'm not offending, I probably am, but posters of like heartworm disease as the largest piece of art in the building, like the life cycle of the heartworm disease. What client gives a shit about that? And when do you ever go over and be like a teacher and be like, well, it starts right here with the dirofilaria and it works around and come on, that's not happening. So get rid of the stupid posters of drugs and things like that. This becomes gimmicky and salesy. So that was number one. Like I wanted it to not smell. <laughs> that was a simple thing that I wanted to never smell. And it was funny because at the time, right when we, before we sold, I would just was bop, bopping around all my practices and I'd pop into any one of the practices with a bunch of donuts or whatever, just saying hi to everybody. And they'd be like, Dr. Phillips, there was a Tomcat here yesterday. And I promise you we fabuloso the entire building and it's going to be gone. <laughs> they just knew that I was going to just be like, what's that smell? But music, <laughs> environment, right? My company's always had stereo speakers in every room that were adjustable so that when you left a client in there for like two minutes, you could turn on lo-fi jazz music playing in there. And then they don't feel like they're stuck in a nine by nine white box with their scared cat for 40 minutes. So that high-end equipment, beautiful artwork, we had a, a color scheme. We use the exact same floor tile and wall tile and paint colors in every one of my practices. I mean, it sounds corporate slash franchisee, but I knew that it worked at the first one. Why wouldn't I do it at the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth? So uh, that was the number one thing. And then, you know, then we wanted just to be really f as friendly as we possibly could be. I'm not saying we met our marks 100% of the time, but that was part of our value system was driving like these people are coming in and they're going to be stressed out and their cat's going to be stressed out and they don't want it to smell like dogs. We got that covered. But when they get in the door, I'm going to need you to know their name and why they're here, and I'm gonna need you to make damn sure that there's an exam room waiting and ready for them so that they can just like walk up, weigh their pet, walk past the refreshment center, grab a freaking bottled water or a cup of coffee into the exam room, and then the process of cityway animal clinicking starts at that point. And then we had that to the point where it's like, everybody does it the same way, we talk to people about the same things, this person goes in, then you leave, and I'm not gonna give away all the things, not that it's trade secrets or anything, but we've talked about that ad nauseum, about flow, you know, in our practices, but if you don't have it, make it, create it. And I think a lot of people get so stuck on like, I don't want it to be like cookie cutter everything. Well, I tell you what, certain processes that are important need to be cookie cutter. That way you can plug in the next person. And if everyone's doing it the same way, it allows you to scale. If you have a single location, you can get away with certain things. You can kind of mask it by being Superman or Superwoman. You go to three locations where you can't be Superman or Superwoman at the same time. All of a sudden, all those things start to rear their ugly head. 
building management takes up 20% of your time. And that's no fun. No one wants to be fixing a toilet or attending to the roof that's leaking or, God forbid, an HVAC unit that goes down or branch that into just all the other shit that can happen in your veterinary clinic on the veterinary side. Your back machine's not spitting out samples anymore. Your anesthesia machine's out of gas or it's broken or how many times does that dental air machine break? You're right in the middle of like this nasty mouth. You're going to have to do six extractions and your drill bit stops working. Who's taking care of that? If it's the veterinarian who's also doing the oral surgery and then he or she has to stop and then and then troubleshoot the machine, it got to the point with us. I was like, hey, get Jordan on the phone. Like this thing's not working and I'm going into surgery. And Jordan would just get there as fast as she could. And she'd fix it <laughs> like within minutes because she knew everything about all the, all the machinery we had. If you don't have a Jordan, I don't know how you do it. I just don't. I did it. I don't want to go back to that ever. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. So EOS, in kind of the simplistic terms that you told me when we chatted, and, and you can kind of expand on this, and then some of the things that you implemented around the team and the culture, I think it's great. And maybe you could touch on what your kind of mission and values were, but it's the right person in the right seat. There's all those little jargons, right? A lot of people, if you've dabbled around the edge of traction and EOS, you've heard some of these <clears throat> little sayings. And that was unfortunately one of the things that drew my partner away from the idea was because she heard these sayings. She's like, oh my God, you're talking like in this different language and it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I'm like, well, that's okay. We're going to teach you the process. But right, right person, right seat. Values you know, are huge. And I'm not talking about spending a half a day with your leadership team creating a mission statement that someone cross-stitches and put it, puts it in a frame and puts it in your office and no one ever reads it again. That's what a waste of six hours that was for your entire practice. But to put down your values is different. What are the things that we want to abide by and adhere to? And that has to come top down because like it was my practice. Like I had to like set the values to some extent. Now they were expounded upon by my leadership team as we were going through the brainstorming sessions to come up with exactly what they would be, something that we could publish, something that we could live by every day. But primarily, no, let's take care of community and our people. And I mean, obviously we're veterinarians, so let's put that somewhere in that mix. And what we ended up with at Cityway was that patients were number one, no matter what, you know, if the client's complaining, bitching, complaining, whatever about something, as long as you took care of that patient up here, you were golden with in Cityway. No one was ever going to scold you, write you up, tell you you shouldn't talk to that person that way. It was like, you know, if you could say at the end of the day, ma'am, I'm sorry that you're upset about whatever, but I was here for Fido. And usually that just shuts everybody down. Well, of course, that's what I need. I'm paying you to take care of my pet. So do that first. Second one, right below it was clients, right? We had to make sure that they were educated, that they were cared for, that they didn't leave feeling like that they weren't heard or understood. And how do you do that? Through client education, through contact points with them, recalls, follow-up calls, and lots of them. I mean, at the end of Cityway, before I sold to Consolidators, you know, we had a call center that was manned by five people who just took those calls or made outgoing calls. Hey, three weeks ago, we diagnosed your dog with grade four periodontal disease and did schedule an appointment, but then he's canceled it. I'm giving you a couple of weeks, but I think I need to get you back on the book because we're here for Fido, right? And Fido is more important than everything else. Now I get it. If you can't do it, we'll, we'll talk about that, but I'm here for this. So you have to have a team to do that. And if you don't, then that stuff gets lost. And then people start thinking that you're not caring for their pets as well as you are. Can you talk about the way, what was the total number of the team when you sold? Because pretty shocking, like the the size. 
We had like 76 people. I don't know exactly the number, but that was, it was fluctuating. It was the end of COVID. Start, it was fluctuating less <laughs> at the end of 2021 than it was fluctuating in mm-hmm. mid 2020. I mean, we went from 35 team members. I know this number for a fact in January 1 of 2020 to 70 something team members in December of 2021. And both those years were primarily, you know, a lot of COVID, right? And I would love to tell you that I hired 35 amazing people and they stayed. <laughs> During COVID, we must have hired 50, 60 people. And to no fault of our own, and sometimes to some fault of our own, they didn't stick around longer than like a week. But everybody in this business, I think, could, can commiserate with me, where it's like you would hire someone who you thought was amazing and then... They would go home and after a couple of stressful days at a very busy practice that churns out really high quality medicine, it's not easy. Like we're not asking them to sit around and read a couple fecals during the day. After a four week training session, training program that we put them through, you're going to hit it and we need you to hit it. You need to be in charge of some stuff. And they'd go home and they'd be like, this is stressful. And you're my roommate and you're doing what? Nothing. And the government's giving you how much per week? (sighs) I quit. People quit all the time. It was tough because you invest any time in them and it's just wasted money. <laughs> so that was tough. So yeah, 35 to 76, much, a lot of growth during COVID. And I think most people experienced that. And how did you keep the team engaged? How did you kind of keep your finger on the pulse of things? Can you talk a little bit about the way you had your team set? And also one thing that you shared out at WVC, which I'd love to have you share, is the drinks. So you had a bar around the corner from one of the locations and this like no hold bar kind of conversation where they could schedule time with you? Because I think that's a wonderful idea. How did you kind of keep the finger on the pulse of the team and kind of know what was needed as you grew? Because again, that that growth is there. And then how did you interact or how did you kind of empower the leadership team to take on that responsibility? Yeah, well, it helps when you grow because then you can hire more people to fill in a lot of those blocks in the accountability chart in marketing or in HR or in finance or in any of those places where you as the primary veterinary owner have been doing. I know most of my colleagues for a long time, we all did our own payroll at some point. We all paid the bills, you know, hand wrote the checks back in the day and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, as you start to grow and you can get the revenues to support the staff, you know, you can start plugging people in who maybe are like actually in accounting. (laughs) That'd be cool. (laughs) Or someone who has a little bit of a background in 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 a larger company in HR. So that like, then you start talking about actual HR scenarios, not just hiring and not just training, but cultivating leaders out of that group of people, making sure that they're cared for, making sure that their benefits are being administered properly so they stay out of the court. And then, gosh, that scared me all the time when I was doing all that on my own, because like, if I, you make one mistake, it might be innocent. And, you know, someone could say, hey, you know, he didn't give me my simple IRA distribution at exactly the same time that I was supposed to, and I'm going to sue. And most states are pretty, they care for the employee way more than they care for the employer. So if you're doing a lot of that stuff and you and you know damn well you're doing it wrong, be scared. Like it, one day it's going to happen. So hiring people into those roles was was tantamount to us being able to have a pulse on our team because then we could say, okay, there's an HR person. So any action plans that are, were put into place and, and EOS works this way too. So every 90 days, you know, you run through a people analyzer. And so you run down all your people and your entire organization and you rate them on some criteria, five of which are the top five values that you put down for your company. So if my values were patient care, customer service, community involvement, work-life balance, and when you just run those all down the team, teamwork. So it was, it was clients, patients, team, community involvement, and work-life balance. 
Those were our five values that we wanted. Every question that came up, up to us, we said, run it through the paradigm. Is this good for the patients? Yeah. Okay. Is it good for the clients? Cool. Go all, go all the way down. Is this going to be good for our work-life balance? Opening up on Sundays? Good for patients? Good for clients? Get down to work-life balance? Not good for work-life balance. Don't do it. It's our values. And until those values change, which I don't think they really ever were going to, this is how we're going to run our company. And then the questions that are asked are just easy to answer because you're just like, I don't even need to ask Dr. Phillips about that because I know what he's going to say. He's going to say it's good for the clients, it's good for the patients, it's good for the team, it's good for the community, and it's good for work-life balance. So let's do it. And they would just start working on projects without even like getting me involved until it got to the point where there was an investigation happening and, and they knew how much they were going to have to spend and they knew how much time they were going to have to spend to inst- implement this thing. And then we would do it. And I didn't even know half the shit that was going on in my companies until it rose to that weekly cadence of a meeting that just puts it all out there. I got off track though. No, that was perfect. That was what I kind of wanted to understand because again, it does tie into why you are so passionate around EOS and why you think it's not just buzzwords and gimmicky where some people will hear it and be like, eh, I don't know if that really works. Where you know, I tried, started reading it once on the plane back from Western States because I got jazzed about it. And then I hit the ground and I worked 60 hours the next week and two of my team quit while I was in, at the conference. And the Washington dryer is broken and the freaking Abaxis machines always giving me troubles and still doing it today. How do you do anything? proactive in your company if that's what happens to you yeah the other question and this is a bad thing to do as someone that interviews someone else is to ask multiple questions and especially long ones but i really loved when you shared the stories around the ability for anyone on the team to schedule a time with you grab a drink you had a spot saved for like at a bar around the corner from one of the spots just kind of explain why and then some examples of what came from those discussions i think would be fantastic because i think it's really smart very cool. Yeah, I love talking this story because it's just uh, something I'm very proud of. Because as we started to grow and, and this accountability chart gets a little bit more linear upwards, you know, I mean, eventually you're going to get the CEO at the top and you're going to get hopefully someone below them that's the, the uh, integrator. You know, the CEO is like the visionary, the one who's like taking all these wild and crazy thoughts. And then you know, the integrator does a lot of that work and then is in charge of like the next level, which would be like you know, mid-management level, you know, all your directors of HR, financing, quality control, marketing. We had an equipment and inventory director. So she bought and everything and maintained it. That was the Jordan I was telling you about. I mean, she knew how to fix the access machines. She knew how to fix the dental air machine. She knew exactly how much heartburn prevention we needed on every shelf of all five practices. Mind blowing. Thank God I didn't have anything to do with any of that because I would have been terrible at it. So once you get all those levels in there, it does get a little bit dicey so that the people at the bottom who are your worker bees, your technicians, your veterinary assistants, your even your associates, to be clear, associates were right there on that same level in our org chart as every other worker. They're there to do a job, which is to see as many patients as they possibly can, the best way they possibly can with the best equipment that we've, we've provided for them, and to make sure those customers and clients are satisfied and happy and educated when they left. And so they weren't involved in HR. If they had a complaint about the training or somebody that didn't know how to do X, Y, or Z, well, there was two levels of people to go through So in, until we would find a way to then send the training back to the person who needed it. And I'm not talking like months. It didn't take months of emails for this to happen. I mean, it was within hours, if not a day. And if it, worst case scenario, it got addressed every Wednesday when we had our weekly level 10 cadence meeting, which was 90 minutes every single Wednesday at two o'clock in the exact same room every single time. And that's what we did. And we run through all those things. And so if someone said, hey, someone needs more training, you know, okay, you do it. You know, yeah, that's my job. Okay, great. Get done. 
And that's how it all worked out. But I understood, felt that I could see where some of these people would be like, there's like six levels before I can talk to Dr. Kirk Phillips. And he seems pretty cool. And it'd be fun to hang out with him and always comes in here and brings donuts and just checks on things. And I was working my magic with my leaders and, and my managers and but was always caring about what was happening on. I could still jump back into the exam room whenever I wanted. And I did on occasion. So I wanted to make sure that when I got there, that things were running smoothly. Right. So I knew there was a lot of levels of separation. So I felt a little sheepish about that. So we started this thing called Drinks with Dr. P. And right across the street from one of our facilities, our first one downtown was this amazing gastropub with this beautiful long bar and the most comfortable bar seats in town. And they had this big thing called a grand board. And you just say, I want the grand board. And it's just a whole bunch of charcuterie meats and cheeses. And, and they got a great mixologist, you know, behind the bar. And, and, you know, the staff is a treat for them to go there. So I would go there first Tuesdays of every month. And then we had an online sign up kind of a thing. And they would just sign up for an hour and a half long blocks. And there's only two at night because I didn't want to be there for six hours. And if you got, and they were always full months in advance. Like they'd be like, all right, in February, I get to go have drinks with Dr. P because I'm going to talk about something that I, I want to do. I want to do more cold laser in our practices. And, and we've got this machine and it's not being utilized, but I think I'm the person for that. And so she put her name on the list and then talked to me for an hour and a half about that. And they would just show up and have charcuterie and as many cocktails as they wanted. If most of my team members walked to work. So I didn't have to worry about them driving intoxicated. But if they if they did get a little intoxicated, Ubers were called. And I think they just went home thinking, he listened to me. That makes me emotional, you know, because that's huge. Well, and I was just having a conversation today with a veterinarian that has is an owner. And he had done a ton of relief work through COVID. And one of the things that he continued to see is as clinics were getting bought, and changed, he's like, at the end of the day, there was never the person to go ask. There was never the person that was accountable. It was always kicked to someone else. And it felt like there was this faceless, nameless thing at the end that would make the decisions. And it's cool, again, in the situation that you just shared, it's like, you can feel like I can go to Dr. P, we can have this conversation. Whether I get told, hey, that's a great idea, we're gonna do it, but maybe I'm gonna get some context as to why it doesn't work, but I just don't understand why that is. Now that helps me understand it. That's most of what happens from your support team. And if they're, if there's a disconnect between them and management, it is almost always that they don't understand why something's not happening in the way that they want it to happen. And it got 300 times worse during COVID, right? Because, you know, now we're like, oh no, I have a cousin who is a veterinarian in Seattle and they're doing it this way. And I'm like, no, we're doing it Cityway's way. And we call it that all the time, the Cityway way. Is that the Cityway way? No, it's not the Cityway way. Why is it not the Cityway way? Because it doesn't match our five values. So let's not even talk about it. Why, why are we wasting any time talking about this? And sometimes during those meetings, they'd, they'd come in and they'd say, this is my idea and nobody seems to be listening to me. And I'd say, well, who have you talked to? Well, my colleagues, my other groomers. Okay, well, you think that's the right way to make change happen is it just to complain to your other groomers about an idea that you have that you don't seem to think is actually being implemented? Well, first off, I've never heard about this idea before. No one on my leadership team has. You swirling it around in the cesspool of gossip is not going to work. You've, you had every opportunity to make an appointment with anybody you wanted to on the leadership team, and you didn't. So have another drink, but I'm here to tell you, like, go back and do what you're supposed to do, which is take it up the channel to the right person. And if in any way that you feel like you're being blocked or the person is not responding to you or is in you know Ohio someplace, then I can understand that. I can empathize with you. But these people work here and they're available. And we're here to help because you're amazing. 
and I don't want to lose you, but I'm going to because you're doing things the wrong way. And that's the hardest part of turnover is when you're like, it was the right person in the right seat and we still lost them. And why? Who takes the onus for that? Is it our poor communication stylings? Is it the fact that I'm an ogre to work for, that I walk in and I kick the wall every time, like, you know, I can't get a vein, that I say inappropriate things or that I don't listen to anybody on my team. I just do it my way or the highway. If that's the case, you don't deserve to have qualified team members. But we did everything for our team that we possibly could. And if they didn't think that we were doing it, it was was probably what you just said, Isaiah, as I just didn't understand. Yep. It seems like most things, whether it's in a relationship with your spouse, whether it's at work, communication, if you get that right with clients, right, making them be able to say yes to treatment. If communication is clear, it's amazing what happens, right? It's amazing. So we should have way more whole uh, exhibit hall rooms at major conferences just on communication alone. You know, I don't see it as much. I see like creating culture and hiring and firing and you know how to train and that kind of stuff. But yeah, that would be pretty good just to talk about communication. And, and I'm talking about communication within my own team. Correct. There's yeah. one thing about client communication. We did get taught that in vet school. There was a significant amount of time talking about what you ask when you walk into the room, leading questions, get the information you need so that you can make the diagnoses you need, go through your didactic learning process, all that. So we got pretty good at communicating with, communicating with clients. But what we didn't get is how to deal with every other person that's in this building with me at this time. And I need every single one of those people to do their job so that we can do the best thing for Fido. And Fido's up here, right? And if you don't have that, which I don't think a lot of practices do, it's mayhem. Organized chaos at times or just chaos that may or may not be organized. What haven't I asked about around EOS, Cityway, your story, your team, that you feel like is really, really important? Because I have another question that's going to, I think, help us close, but it's a bigger one that we might want to unpack for a second. So I just wanted, before I moved and transitioned, wanted to just kind of ask and see if there's anything else. I think that the biggest thing is just creating that structure and then living it. I'm an implementer. So if I hear a good idea, I'm going to go home and I'm going to put it into play. And I'm not going to just give it like a two-day trial and then you know have one person say, well, there's something wrong with that particular idea and then just throw the baby out with the bath, bath water. That's not the kind of guy I ever was. So EOS helped with that because it was like, you know, there were there were timelines where you'd say, okay, we're, we're going to address this, but like, we're going to address this. I can tell you exactly what date it is. It's going to be on March 31st, which is the end of the first quarter. And that's when we're having our quarterly meeting and we'll definitely address it. And it's only like March 10th. So can we put this on the back burner for 11, 21 more days? Because then it's really the best way to hammer stuff out and get the things answered so that you can get back on track and get that traction again. That, that That's the name of the book. So that was just, it's just huge. And I think that even if you don't do the traction EOS system, just another great book, kind of like a primer to it is the E-Myth book. You know, the, and the E-Myth's subtitle is Why Most Small Businesses Fail. It's kind of like a primer to uh, lead her into traction. And it just says you got to have job descriptions. You've got to hold people accountable for what their job is. If you're asking, if your job description is not the same as what you're actually asking them to do, well, then reevaluate job description for crying out loud. Because then you're right. You're not handcuffed by any one particular person on your team who says, if I quit, you're effed. And you could say, nah, I've got a job description. I'll hire tomorrow. I don't want this relationship to end. But the way you're acting right now, you got to go. Yeah, you can't put me in a hostage situation. That's not a <laughs> a positive work environment. 
And I think once we start to really cultivate our staff and, our, and get our team growing, and again, you know, we very rarely ever call them employees or staff or workers or anything like that. We tended to call them team members because we felt they were a part of a bigger team. And once you get that jiving and flowing and grooving and people are like loving what they're doing and coming to work and knowing that their particular role is being met. And then when they go in for their yearly review, they're going to score phenomenally because they know exactly what they're supposed to be doing and they're killing it. And then you have a big, a larger accountability chart or an organizational chart, and you have the ability to find really great people who could be plugged in here or there or there, or even right underneath me. My chief operating officer I hired when I was in Carmel in the suburbs, he was a guy who who was attending Indiana University. He moved up to Indianapolis with his now husband and he didn't finish college and he got, he loved working with animals and he got a job in a clinic in Bloomington while he was going to school. And then when he moved to Indianapolis, he needed a job. So I gave him a job in Carmel and 14 years later, he's my chief operating officer and he has a stake in the company. And so when we sold, he got a portion of that. And we're constantly talking about raising associate veterinarians up to leaders or whatever. I was like, you know what? I didn't have any associate veterinarians who were diehard destined to become owners. And that was fine. But I had Ken and Ken was like, I want to do more and more and more and more. And I just kept putting him in roles that were more and more. And the amount of things he did to help our companies flourish, I don't care how much I had to pay him. Yeah, I love that. Because I think there is so much focus on the associates. And rightfully so, right? When you think about like where revenue comes from, but when you start to grow and as you build the team to put them in a position of success, like having Ken or someone like that creates the opportunities then for the associates to go do their best work. Exactly. On that note, I had a post recently on LinkedIn that I put out there and it got a little bit of traction. I just did a a podcast about like just some of the reaction. I wanted to ask you as the question to round things out today, And it was just basically me saying, I want to see more private practice ownership. And I'm extremely excited on folks building this future because I think there's a lot of cool things. You and I chatted on some stuff. There's plenty of other people at WVC doing some awesome stuff that I think will help support this. But I said, blank is stopping veterinarians from wanting to own their own clinic. And I said, what's your answer? I would love to hear your take on that. Why do you think more veterinarians aren't interested or there's this thought or this assumption that they aren't? So that, to me, it's a combination of fear and lack of confidence, I think, perhaps. That is so interesting because that was one of the big key five or six things from 50 plus comments. Fear was a big one. Yeah, I mean, they're fearful of the finances. They're fearful of having nobody to dump everything onto. You know, as an associate, you get sick, you get strep throat, you got sick days, you just call in. Someone takes care of it for you. <laughs> if you're an owner single practice owner who doesn't have the structure that I had at the end of my career. And I was that person. So I know exactly what that feels like. And I'm not saying that anybody who's experiencing those things is an idiot because I was the same idiot, right? Felt the exact same way all those people are right now. And I've sat in your shoes and I understand it. And it was scary. (laughs) But our systems are set up to like, you know, if you feel the stress and the cortisol release and everything, it's fuel to help us roll out of that stressful scenario, learn, open the brain, open the pocketbook sometimes, you know, realize that, you know, gosh, if I gave away $60,000 next year of my overall profit, my life would be a thousand percent better. And how much is that worth to you? And then when your life is better, the whole company gets better. Spend some money to make some money. That's another thing that I'd say. But yeah, fear of the, all that and the fear of the unknown. I don't know how to do an operating agreement. I don't know how to do a business plan. I don't know how to 
uh, do a buy-sell agreement if I'm going into a partnership. I don't know how to negotiate the cost of this practice. It's not a de novo. If I wanted to do a de novo, I, I don't know how to find the location, to negotiate with a landlord. What is a good price per square foot per year in this community? Is there enough clients? What equipment am I going to have to buy? Holy shit, I think maybe like an otoscope, probably a stethoscope. Yeah, and a lot of other stuff. And then you're going to open and you're going to be like, you know, like you're not ready. So we just need to help these younger potential veterinary entrepreneur owners who truly want to become a CEO of their own practice that they own and are in charge of. We need to help reduce their fear and give them some help. Amen. I love that. I always let guests ask me a question before we close. I know you've tuned in the podcast a couple of times. I didn't necessarily prep you to ask me a question, but I know you probably have some good things. Any question you want to ask? Yeah, I potentiated it before, but I just, I'm enamored with someone like you who, who is so eloquent and well-spoken and organized and creates this amazing content that, that I've listened to so many of your podcasts, you know, over the past six months that I just, I wasn't into the podcast mode for a while after I retired. I, spent more time on a river and on a mountain than listening to technology. But once I got back into it, I was just so um, excited to see that like there's something that's that's hitting some of these really great topics week after week after week. And then I looked at your bio and I'm like, bro, I've never even been in a vet clinic before. So (laughs) what, why? And I think I potentially know the answer because I've asked that to other people and and the answer tends to always be the same. And it's a really nice positive about our entire industry. But you tell me what your reason for putting all this time into it. Well, it is interesting. And I've talked to a number of different veterinarians and I got some really nice compliments around stuff, but I've never done it, right? So like, that's still tricky, but ultimately the podcast was started to learn. I wanted to learn. I wanted to talk to people. I knew I had to learn to get better. And so I can then turn it around and use that as this kind of microphone to say at the time, hey, I'm a financial planner. I want to work with veterinarians. I'm going to, put out this content. If you're interested, I'm going to understand your industry better than anyone else. That was the goal. That was why the podcast started. It's morphed and changed, right? As my career has changed, but it's been one of those things where when that partnership failed, when I had to move on, when I will say failed, right? In that endeavor, I had people say like, so is the podcast done now too? I was like, no, I really enjoy it. I'm going to do something in vet med. I'm still figuring it out, but the people are great. I've built awesome relationships and friendships in this space. I can't just pack it up and leave. And oh, by the way, yes, I'm going to go work in Bitcoin, but we joked about this, right? These two passions that seem like they're so polar opposites. I think there's something there. And so I'm going to continue to talk and do it. But yeah, it's the people and you know that. And so many people in vet med know that, which is interesting because you hear this. I didn't come to this. I hear it at times. Well, I'm, I'm not here for people. I'm here for the pets, right? I'm here for the animals. I'm not here for the people. It's like, well, the people are attached to it. And there is a subset of, of people I think are ideally suited for vet med. And for some reason, to me, they're some of the best people around. And it's like, why wouldn't I want to, you know, have some sort of small role or way to stay connected and be a resource? So that's it. I appreciate the compliments. It's well, just been is fun. Seek first to understand. And that's what you did to learn about as much as we can about our, about our industry that we're so uh, 1000% proud of, right? And then the people, and you're right. I mean, the people, I chose veterinary medicine over dentistry. I was probably equal, equal about which one I would go into. And I thought, I will never get to talk to someone. My hands will be in their mouth the entire time. And how will we have a conversation? Or I can become a veterinarian and 
the entire time I'm petting and doing an exam that they're not even knowing that I'm doing, you know, fully examining their pet. We're talking about their kid's soccer tournament that they went to last week or new business that they're going to open or what restaurant in town is amazing. That just gave me all the pride in the world. And I was happy that other veterinarians are going to doing it for the same way. So veterinarians in general are just kind people. <laughs> they just like other human beings. And anybody who says that they did it because of the animals first, that's fine. But close second is learning how to be a decent human being. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know you, again, you talked about you're retired. There's probably some stuff that will be on the horizon for you. I think this is a really interesting podcast. I don't know how much stuff you want to share versus keep, but I think there are people that should be interested in your story and want to connect and chat more about some of the things that you're working on or things that you've done. Where would you send them? How do they best connect with you? How can they get in touch? I've spent more time since I've been trying to kind of maybe consider sparking out of retirement. And more of my time is spent on LinkedIn. I mean, I know it's Facebook for business owners, but but it's probably the best way to connect to me because I consider anything that I'm looking on there to be like a real request from a reputable and someone who I would care to talk to. And like I said, I've been listening to so many of your podcasts and I think, I don't know, probably seven or eight. I wrote them all down, how many different people I've reached out to on LinkedIn and said, hey, I heard you on Isaiah Douglas's podcast. And I think that what you said about this is outstanding. Can we just jump on a phone call and have a, an hour long discussion about that? And I'm not saying we're going to you know, trade, trade secrets or anything. I don't know. You can share with me much or as little as you want to, but I don't think there's anything wrong with making another connection in this industry. I was fortunate to go out to a really great industry party at the Western Veteran Conference that night. We talked about that and on that Tuesday, Monday night. And it was just fun to be around like movers and shakers in the industry, people who want the best for veterinarians. They want the best for the pets. They want the best for the future of financial success for veterinarians. And they want to make some money and, and, and turn some heads and do some cool shit in the process. And I didn't ever see that until recently. I'm super happy for it. <laughs> it. And that's part of why I'm like, I am so extremely optimistic just knowing a handful of folks that are doing some really cool stuff. And it makes me so incredibly yeah, bullish on just this pendulum swing back. And I keep talking about that back to this private practice. I think private practice medicine is going to kind of go back through this golden era. And I think there's a super good opportunity. And so, yeah, if you're listening to this and you're still here and you're a younger veterinarian, it's like there are going to be so many cool, creative ways to be an owner, to do some really unique things. And that you're going to be able to pick like, how do I want to do it? Who do I want to do it with? Do I want to do it myself? Do I want to have some sort of partnership? There's going to be really cool things that are coming and that people that I think can bring a lot because this idea of a lack of mentorship and this fear of not knowing, I think a lot of that stuff is going to maybe not be solved. It's going to be a lot less impactful. So that stuff can be fixed pretty easily. I mean, I saw it not from an ownership standpoint, but for, I saw associates coming in saying, listen, it's been nine months and I'm still you know, doing a spay that takes me an hour and 15 minutes and I'm nervous in there every single time I go. And when you have a true mentor, and as a CEO of my company, I had some margin in my life. So I just thought, I'm going to take on this mentorship stuff. So I just met with my associates regularly. And I'm like, listen, I get it. Like I've been there. And what can I do to help? That's all, all, I, all I'm here for. And we'll get this better. And I want you to stay in this industry. I don't want you leaving it. You're really great at your job. You just need just little tweaks here and there. And that, yeah, if we can just provide that to them. And, and I've got a product that I'm thinking a couple of buddies that I are putting together. And it very well might be the only product like it on the market when it comes to helping younger veterinarians become that true CEO of their own company. We'd be in charge of their own domain and their own destiny and build wealth 
in a faster time than any JV model that any other potential minority partnership can do unless those JV models, that company recaps at 15X or something like that. And then the associate who has 0.65% of the company will reap some benefits. But is that all that they want? Is just a one-time financial gain? Or are they looking for the ability to create something that they're really proud of, that they are absolutely in charge of, that they've got a bunch of people who are helping feed them the things that they need to be successful, which I didn't have. I was opening up my own practices. I did it all on my own. And if there was something that we could hand this product to a 33-year-old young veterinarian who says, the thing I want the most is to own my own practice and just kill it in my community, then we should help them. Yep. And I think that's a perfect spot to say, stay tuned, go follow Dr. Phillips on LinkedIn. And I think there'll be some uh, exciting stuff uh, down the pike here. But thank you so much for the time. This was fantastic. It was a blast. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment tax or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. However, you are intelligent enough to make decisions for yourself. So I do encourage you to dig in, learn for yourself, and not just outsource every decision that you make. You should talk to your professional team if you have one before implementing anything that I talk about, but also make sure they know what they're talking about. Push them, question them. That's healthy. That's okay. Oh yeah, and you should probably own and learn a little bit about that Bitcoin thing. The biggest compliment you can give to me is to share the show with a friend or the podcast if there's another episode that you really like. That helps folks find it. That helps it grow. Um, reviews are critical. The Apple Podcast is the platform that's predominantly used for how people find the show. So if you have three minutes, love the show, please head over, give us five stars if you believe that's what we earned. That would help more people find the show. Also, if you're new, go to YouTube. It's a channel. Uh, putting up all the videos there as well. Sometimes it's going to be more interactive. Other times it's just going to be the conversation. So vainly, I want to get 100 subscribers so I get the vanity URL. That's the goal. We're on our way, but not quite there yet. For all of today's links information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can also subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss any episodes in the future. And finally, if you'd like more information, insights, or have the ability to, for your voice to be heard, join the Facebook group. You can search for the Veterinarian Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll to the bottom, that's your host. Click on the Facebook icon. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. All right. So there are a lot of great job postings that I want to get to. And so we're going to start off with Bayside Hospital for Animals. Great work-life balance in beautiful Fort Walton Beach, Florida. No weekends, Monday to Friday, eight to five, no on-call or emergencies. It's an appointment only here. Currently a two and a half doctor practice, new owner in 2021, bringing some fresh life into the hospital. The new owner had been there for six years prior working, so definitely understands the team, the processes in the community. Lots of investment in people and new equipment. ProSal is the pay structure Far too many benefits for me to list. Email BaysideVet251 at Yahoo or call 850-864-1857. Join a thriving, growing, small animal practice in Vermont on the Quebec border. Full-time ideal, part-time is considered. The idea is to start with yes with the team, patients and clients in outdoor woman's paradise while uh, being able to practice high-quality medicine. Compensation is write your own structure within production capabilities. Literally, it is the owner wants to t find the right person and is happy to negotiate, chat through, and find the right fit. If you want autonomy and a boss that enjoys teaching, reach out to Newport Veterinary Hospital. You can email newportveterinaryhospital at gmail.com. North Central Indiana, looking for an oasis in the chaos? 
who isn't, right? Come join the amazing team at Fulton County Veterinary Clinic. They strive to foster a fun, fast-paced work environment while providing quality patient care. They utilize the support staff efficiently so that the doctor is available to practice medicine and do what you're trained to do in less time and paperwork, which is great. Lots of investment in new equipment and technology to support you, full-time or part-time available. Small animal and exotics are both seen there, so no ER, no on-call, no weekends, competitive salary with sign-on bonus offered, and far too many benefits to list. Go to Fulton County Veterinary Clinic, so type that in and you'll find the job posting there. Last but not least, join Watertown Animal Hospital, personable, small animal veterinarian wanted for well-established current five-doctor mixed animal practice in northern New York, which is an outdoors person's paradise. Again, two of those, so if you like the outdoors, you can look at Vermont or New York. They have plenty of support staff with six CSRs, six licensed technicians, four animal caretakers, two technical assistants, hospital associate, or sorry, hospital assistant, a practice manager, and a bookkeeper. Focuses on mentorship and investment on the people and the technology. That's been a strategic initiative by the leadership team. No on call, a 24-hour ER less than an hour away. Salary based on experience, but no less than 95000 can be straight salary, pro-sal considered, want to discuss that with the right person. Tons of benefits. Again, too much to list. Please reach out to watertownpetcare.com for that option as well. So again, if you find a role or a job or talk to anyone and it helps you in any way, I would love to hear that feedback. So please reach out. Let me know what you're able to do. And I will continue to post these. So if you are an owner, reach out to me, let me know. And we'll go from there. And until I hit a capacity of I can't keep recording these, I want to let people know who are high quality owners around the country looking for great help. So with that, we'll talk soon.